The reading this evening is from the letter of St. Paul to the Hebrews, chapters 5 and 6, which is found on page 1204 in the Pew Bibles. It's page 1204. Hebrews 5 and 6. Every high priest is selected from among men and is reappointed to represent them in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever, in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who, by constant use, have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end 
in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Here ends the reading. Thank you, Andrew. Well, life can be very uncertain. On Friday, in the general election, against all the predictions of the pollsters and political commentators, the Conservatives returned to government with an outright majority. No one had foreseen this. Indeed, for weeks we've been told we were facing another coalition government, with days taken up after the election in working out who would make up the coalition. And they were all proved wrong. Life can be very uncertain. In July 2002, my wife Trisha and I were in America, and that week, the New York stock market index, the Dow Jones, plunged hundreds of points. America was still abuzz with the fall of Enron, the Arthur Anderson accounting firm, and WorldCom, and similar stories were coming out almost daily. And on July the 17th, the New York Times blazed this headline across its front page, Is Uncertainty the Only Certainty? Is Uncertainty the Only Certainty? And that uncertainty has continued with the fall of Lehman Brothers in 2008 and the resulting near collapse of the West's economic system. We were within half an hour of the ATMs not being able to produce money. We face natural disasters, the earthquake and tsunami in Japan in 2011, and more recently, the terrible earthquake in Nepal. And people are looking for answers and certainty. And sadly, they don't always find that from Christians and the church. Too often, even church leaders share their doubts and their uncertainties. And that's not what we find in the Bible, in particular in the letter to the Hebrews, which we're currently studying. And it would be a huge help if you had the passage in front of you, because clearly with two big chapters, and they're complicated chapters, you need to find your way around. So would you turn to page 1204, and on the back of the yellow sheet you can see the headings, and you can see where I'm going from there as well. 1204, Hebrews chapters 5 and 6. You see, far from being uncertain, the writer to the Hebrews shows in chapter 6, verse 17, how God himself wants to make the unchanging nature of his purpose for humanity very clear. God is not in the business of playing games with us. 
He wants his followers, you and me, to live confidently in his presence. And that's why again and again you'll read phrases like the encouragement in chapter 4, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. Chapter 10, he writes that we are to draw near to God in full assurance of faith. Confidence is not triumphalism, an arrogant view of superiority that we're right and others wrong, nor is it presumption. For the path that Jesus took to provide an anchor for our souls, that wonderful phrase, chapter 6, verse 19, to enable us to feel firm and secure was a path that led him to suffering. You'll remember that the Hebrews were finding it hard to follow Jesus for good reason. They were facing severe persecution, including confiscation of their property and imprisonment. Nor has this changed. Today, many Christians in many parts of the world also face imprisonment and even death for acknowledging Jesus. So what can this passage offer us by means of encouragement? How can we be encouraged today after our time together? How can God motivate us not just to keep going, but to rise above where we are now? And here's my first point. We can be encouraged and motivated if we remember what Jesus did for you and me. If we remember what Jesus did for you and me. In fact, the writer does this throughout the letter of Hebrews. Again and again, he makes us refocus away from ourselves and our difficulties and onto Jesus. That's what we saw right at the beginning in chapter 1 where those wonderful first three verses which discuss Jesus as the radiance of God's glory, as co-creator, and as the means of our salvation. Now, here in chapter 5, after showing how Jesus is our great high priest, a theme he'll return to later, the writer highlights a new aspect, namely the inner struggles Jesus went through in order to secure our eternal destiny. Look at verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. These verses refer to that night in the Garden of Gethsemane when, as Luke records in chapter 22, Jesus cried out to God, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And Luke, who was a doctor, also describes how Jesus was in such anguish that sweat poured to the ground like drops of blood. And interestingly in St. Michael's, if you look at the west window, it's of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a key moment. And Jesus learned obedience, verse 8, not that he was ever disobedient, but this suffering was so terrible that it called on him to obey to an extent he had never before experienced. But his obedience to God, by his obedience to God, the humanity of Jesus was therefore completed, made perfect, verse 9. So he became the source of eternal salvation for all who called on him. Jesus was perfectly divine, but also perfectly human. Can you imagine why Jesus asked God 
to take the cup from him. Surely it was because he knew what lay ahead. He knew that he would not just suffer a horrible death physically, but he was going to take on his shoulders the sin of the whole world. And that would mean, for a moment, separation from God. That's why the cry from the cross is so dreadful. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever felt God forsaken? Have you ever felt abandoned by God to the extent that you wonder if he's even there? Have you ever realized just what Jesus went through that you might have eternal life? Because until you have, you will never be anything more than a half-hearted disciple, tempted like the Hebrews were to give up on Jesus when the going gets tough. On my visit to the Holy Land some years ago now, I visited a small uh, chapel on the Mount of Olives. And that chapel commemorates Jesus weeping over Jerusalem and its future destruction. And from the chapel, you have that famous panoramic view over Jerusalem, the golden dome of the rock, the walls surrounding the city. And you look down on it. What moved me deeply was the thought the realization that Jesus had a choice, a real choice. He could have disobeyed God, and who could blame him as we consider the awful price that he would pay, or he could do what he did and go through that dreadful agony on our behalf. What unbelievable humility. What incredible obedience. What amazing love for you and for me. So if you are finding it hard to be a disciple of Jesus, it may be that you need God to show you again what it costs Jesus to secure your eternal destiny. So you understand the full force of what Jesus did for you and how much he loves you. The writer to the Hebrews brings us back to Jesus again and again because we tend to think that it's all about us, when in fact, it's all about him. The second motivator to keep us going is God's purpose for your soul. God's purpose for your soul. As I said before, the Hebrews were finding it very hard to keep going. Now God says through the writer, no wonder. This is no soft soap here. This is a blunt Yorkshireman. No wonder, he says, You've hardly grown spiritually at all. Whose fault is that? Look at chapter 5, verse 12. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. They're like spiritual babies. Iona comes in with her little baby. I think she's just gone out. But you feed babies on milk because they're babies. But these are spiritual babies who should be actually on solids. And one of the failures, if you're still on milk, is you can't tell right from wrong, good from evil. You're not mature. You're not grown up. Babies can't. 
You see, the writer to the Hebrews is like a spiritual health visitor. Babies are checked regularly to see if they're flourishing and thriving. If they're not, then action has to be taken. And incidentally, health visitors are very, very powerful people. They can turn up when they choose. So when my first daughter was born, uh, my wife, Tricia, for the first time went out, and I was left holding the baby, and the health visitor called. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I have to be sure I'm calm and in control and all the rest of it. And when my wife, Tricia, came back, she said, oh, they should have made an appointment. I said, no, that's why they just turn up. Because they want to know, are you looking after this baby? And Hebrews, the writer, is saying, grow up. It's very serious. What is his prescription? They need someone to teach them the elementary truths of God's word all over again. And incidentally, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, look at what he regards as elementary. It includes teaching on repentance, faith in God, baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, when on the last day Jesus will return and will rise to face God. Unbelievers will go to eternal judgment, Christians to be with Jesus forever. And God may want to say the same to us today. Are we growing spiritually? Are we learning from God? Have you and I grasped the above? Because in the writer's mind, these are basic truths or doctrines. They are foundational. Take, for example, eternal judgment and the return of Christ. Lord Shaftesbury was a great 19th century reformer. And he did much to legislate against unjust working practices caused by the Industrial Revolution. He also founded or supported 33 philanthropic organizations, including Christian ones such as the British and Foreign Bible Society, the London City Mission, which we're still linked with, and the YMCA. What was the motivation, what was his motivation for such tireless service? He once said this, I do not think that in the last 40 years I have lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. I don't think in the last 40 years I've lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. And the writer to the Hebrews clearly had a similar thought in mind. Turn back to chapter 4, verse 13. This is what he wrote. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It's a foundational teaching. Because you see, if you constantly and consciously live each moment as if it were your last and you're about to give account to God, you'll find it much easier to be motivated to following Jesus. There'll be an urgency about it. And the fact is we all know our birthdays. We don't know our death days. Only God does. And in order to motivate them further, the writer again gives them a warning and an encouragement. And the warning comes in chapter 6, verses 4 to 6. And in the words of one commentator, this is one of the most terrible passages in Scripture. Look at verse 4. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, 
because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Now, theologians have discussed and argued over this passage for years, and basically there are two views. The Arminian view, which states that a true believer can lose his or her salvation, and the Calvinist view, which states that a true Christian will never lose their salvation. Calvinists believe that there are those who once appeared to be part of the church, but by their rejection of Christ have shown themselves to lack real faith. And those in this last group may have been enlightened. Verse 4, they may have been taught and have understood the basis of the faith and even publicly repented. But they have not borne fruit and so were never real Christians at all. This is a very solemn thought. These people, by their disloyalty, are crucifying the Lord Jesus all over again and bringing shame to his name. That is the warning, says God to the Hebrews. Make sure you're not one of those people. Then comes the encouragement, and it's a mighty encouragement. The writer is sure his listeners are not in that category since he's seen in their lives the evidence of salvation. Look at verse 10. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. He's saying that I see signs of God at work in you in the way that you relate to others and you care for them uh, uh, and the work that you've done. See, I don't think God ever means us to have periods in our lives when we don't grow spiritually. There may be times when it feels as if we're making no progress at all, other times when we have, so to speak, spiritual growth spurts. And incidentally, don't confuse spiritual maturity with mere increased Bible knowledge or the length of time you've been a Christian or the amount of church activity in which you're engaged. How can you grow spiritually? Here are three top tips, quite briefly. What Gail MacDonald describes, and this is the first one, as the need to tend the fire. Tend your fire. I am almost a pyromaniac. I love open fires. I can get them going quite quickly, and I have to remind myself, you have to feed them. You have to look after them. You have to put the log on at the right time if it's not to go out. We're to do the same spiritually. Make time each day on your own to pray and read your Bible and develop your relationship with Jesus. There's no two ways about it. You may not see much difference at the time. Over the days, the weeks, and the months, you are slowly, bit by bit, building up capital in your spiritual bank, making investments that will last for eternity. Tom Bell is an international organist, our organist, goes around the world. He spends hours practicing here. If he didn't practice for one day, nobody would know. Didn't practice for two days, nobody would know. For a week, probably not, but he plays very complicated pieces. After a fortnight, perhaps we would, and certainly after a month if he didn't practice. If we're not serious about our relationship with God, we won't grow spiritually because we're not being fed solid food. Secondly, here's my top tip. Keep coming to church. Now, I'm not going to say that to you because you're here. Great. We need to be regular and intentional. And it can be hard. Busy lives. Friends come. 
Where are you going now? Oh, well, I was going to church, but I went, because you're here. And then the weeks slip by. Better still, if they're there, ask them to join in church with you, come to church with you. I didn't underestimate this. Before I became, when I became a, a Christian for the first time on Christmas Day, it was very inconvenient in my family that I went to church. Because you're saying something about what's important to you. That your routine and your way of life, you're making space for God. And it's so important to you that you do it regularly. The statistic at the moment, which I think is dreadful, is that regular in the church here in England means attending church once every three weeks. Well, of course we're busy. Of course there are good reasons. No one's beating you with a stick. Somebody once said to me, Charles, I was coming to church, such a sunny day, I was in the park, and I thought, oh, well, I won't. I nearly hit him. (laughs) He thought it was a joke. I didn't. Here's my top third tip. Develop your ministry. God has uniquely equipped each one of us with gifts. You have experience, you have talent, all of which can be used in ministry for him. Ask God to show you what your ministry is to be. Do you remember the Lent course? We looked th- about front lines where God wants us to serve him. So, Iona's not here. Her front line is undoubtedly with other mothers. At the moment, if you work in a hospital, in the city, parliament, in fashion, your front line is the colleagues you work with day after day. Tend the fire. Look after yourself spiritually. Come to church where we can encourage one another. Develop your ministry. As you take in, so you give out. And as we give out in service, we grow spiritually. Sometimes people come to me and they say, God is very distant. I say, I'm really sorry to hear that. Um, are you praying? No, I'm not praying. Are you reading the Bible? No, I'm not reading the Bible. When were you last in church? Oh, I haven't come to church. And then I say, who moved? Because God doesn't move. He's there. Always. The third motivator, here's my final point. The third motivator to keep you going, and this is really encouraging, God's plan for your future, the hope that lies ahead. Look at verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Isn't that a great word? An anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus who went before us has entered on our behalf. Now there may be times in our lives, frankly, when all that we'd counted on suddenly becomes very insecure. It could be through work, we're made redundant, health issues, some tragedy that hits us. And at such times it can be tempting not just to drift away from Jesus but to feel we're being tossed about on a sea of circumstances over which we have no control. God has, however, provided us with an anchor, and it's an anchor for the soul. And that will keep us firm and secure when everything around us us, seems to be in turmoil. And the anchor is the hope to which we've been called. Look at verse 19. This hope is very different from the ordinary sense in which we use the word hope. I, like, I hope the electrician will come when he promised, but I fear he won't. No, the Christian hope is entirely different. It's a certainty, the sure and certain knowledge that if we committed our lives to Jesus Christ, we have inherited eternal life. Now, that probably isn't very 
powerful to you at the moment because you're young, fit, and healthy. But heaven is the certainty which you can look forward to. It's in the bank. It's secure. Isn't that amazing? You put all your money in that uh, secure place. The jewels and the diamonds in Hatton Garden. What do they do? They drill in. Not secure. This is secure. This never changes. You see, death is not the full stop that people think it is. The one unmentionable topic. Uh, you can try this little test at the next party. Have a long task and say, should we talk about death? It's a conversation killer. Christians are not afraid of death. Because when we look ahead to the future, we know we're going home. We have dual citizenship. Trisha could have, my wife Trisha could be a citizen of the United Kingdom or a citizen of the Republic of Ireland because her father was born in the Republic. We are dual citizens, but our real home is not here. It's in heaven. And we all need encouragement. And in the last few verses of chapter 6, we read that God wants us to be clear about what he has promised and certain that we will receive it. Yes, we live in very uncertain times. And no, in response to the headline in the New York Times, uncertainty is not the only thing that is certain. Max Lucado writes, writes movingly of what ultimately awaits the Christian in the future. And he writes this. You may not have noticed it, but you are closer to home than ever before. Each moment is a step taken. Each breath is a page turned. Each day is a mile marked, a mountain climbed. You are closer to home than you've ever been. Before you know it, your appointed arrival time will come. You'll descend the ramp and enter the city. And you'll see faces that are waiting for you. You'll hear your name spoken by those who love you. And maybe, just maybe, in the back, behind the crowds, the one who would rather die than live without you will remove his pierced hands from his heavenly robe and applaud. Let us pray. A moment of quiet as we consider what God has said to us. Is it that we need to refocus on what Jesus has done for us? We're too me-focused. Maybe that we need to focus on solid food. Very practical changes. It may be we need to remind ourselves of what is certain and secure, the anchor for our souls. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you want us to be clear about your purposes. Thank you for the amazing love that you've given us in Jesus. 
who had a choice but obeyed you. And that made all the difference for us and our salvation. We thank you too that the writer to the Hebrews loves them too much not to tell them the truth. That they need to grow spiritually. They need to act for their spiritual health. And thank you for this mighty promise of the anchor for our souls, the promise of heaven, to be with you forever, that nothing and no one can take from us. And we know that for many Christians, even today, that gives them such security in the face of real danger. And so we thank you in a changing world for your unchanging purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.